Part 1, Chapter 21 of The Patrician by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 1, Chapter 21. It was not till the morning of polling day itself that Courtier left Monkland Court. He had already suffered for some time from bad conscience. For his knee was practically cured, and he knew well that it was Barbara, and Barbara alone, who kept him staying there. The atmosphere of that big house with its army of servants, the impossibility of doing anything for himself, and the feeling of hopeless insulation from the vivid and necessitous sides of life, galled him greatly. He felt a genuine pity for these people who seemed to lead an existence as it were smothered under their own social importance. It was not their fault. He recognised that they did their best. They were good specimens of their kind, neither soft nor luxurious, as things went in a degenerate and extravagant age. They evidently tried to be simple, and this seemed to him to heighten the pathos of their situation. Fate had been too much for them. What human spirit could emerge untrammeled and unshrunken from that great encompassing host of material advantage? To a Bedouin, like Courtier, it was as though a subtle but very terrible tragedy was all the time being played before his eyes, and in the very centre of this tragedy was the girl who so greatly attracted him. Every night when he retired to that lofty room, which smelt so good, and where without ostentation everything was so perfectly ordered for his comfort, he thought, My God, tomorrow I'll be off. But every morning, when he met her at breakfast, his thought was precisely the same, and there were moments when he caught himself wondering, Am I falling under the spell of this existence? Am I getting soft? He recognised as never before that the peculiar artificial hardness of the patrician was a brine or pickle in which, with the instinct of self-preservation, they deliberately soaked themselves to prevent the decay of their overprotected fibre. He perceived it even in Barbara, a sort of sentiment-proof overall, a species of mistrust of the emotional or lyrical, a kind of contempt of sympathy and feeling. And every day he was more and more tempted to lay rude hands on this garment, to see whether he could not make her catch fire and flare up with some emotion or idea. In spite of her tantalising, youthful self-possession, he saw that she felt this longing in him, and now and then he caught a glimpse of a streak of recklessness in her which lured him on. And yet, when at last he was saying good-bye on the night before polling day, he could not flatter himself that he had really struck any spark from her. Certainly she gave him no chance at that final interview, but stood amongst the other women, calm and smiling, as if determined that he should not again mock her with his ironical devotion. He got up very early the next morning, intending to pass away unseen. In the car put at his disposal, he found a small figure in a holland frock leaning back against the cushions so that some sandaled toes pointed up at the chauffeur's back. They belonged to little Anne, who in the course of business had discovered the vehicle before the door. Her sudden little voice under her sudden little nose, friendly but not too friendly, was comforting to Courtier. "'Are you going? I can come as far as the gate.' "'That is lucky.' "'Yes. Is that all your luggage?' "'I'm afraid it is.' Oh, it's quite a lot, really, isn't it? As much as I deserve. Of course, you don't have to take guinea pigs about with you. Not as a rule. I always do. There's great granny. 
There certainly was Lady Castley, standing a little back from the drive, and directing a tall gardener how to deal with an old oak tree. Portier alighted, and went towards her to say good-bye. She greeted him with a certain grim cordiality. So you were going. I'm glad of that, though you quite understand that I like you personally. Quite. Her eyes gleamed maliciously. Men who laugh like you are dangerous, as I've told you before. Then with great gravity she added, My granddaughter will marry Lord Harbinger. I mentioned that, Mr. Courtier, for your peace of mind. You are a man of honour. It will go no further. Courtier, bowing over her hand, answered, He will be lucky. The little old lady regarded him unflinchingly. He will, sir. Good-bye. Courtier smilingly raised his hat. His cheeks were burning. Regaining the car, he looked round. Lady Castley was busy once more exhorting the tall gardener. The voice of little Anne broke in on his thoughts. I hope you'll come again, because I expect I shall be here at Christmas, and my brothers will be here then, that is Jock and Tiddy, not Christopher, because he's young. I must go now. Good-bye. Hello, Susie. Courtier saw her slide away and join the little pale, adoring figure of the lodgekeeper's daughter. The car passed out into the lane. If Lady Cassidy had planned this disclosure, which indeed she had not, for the impulse had only come over her at the sound of Courtier's laugh, she could not have devised one more effectual, for there was deep down in him all a wanderer's very real distrust, amounting almost to contempt of people so settled and done for, as aristocrats or bourgeois, and all a man of action's horror of what he called puking and muling. Pursuit of Barbara with any other object but that of marriage had naturally not occurred to one who had little sense of conventional morality but much self-respect, and a secret endeavour to cut out Harbinger, ending in a marriage whereat he would figure as a sort of pirate, was quite as little to the taste of a man not unaccustomed to think himself as good as other people. He caused the car to deviate up the lane that led to Audrey Knowles, hating to go away without a hail of cheer to that ship in distress. She came out to him on the veranda. From the clasp of her hand, thin and faintly browned, the hand of a woman never quite idle, he felt that she relied on him to understand and sympathise, and nothing so awakened the best in Courtier as such mute appeals to his protection. He said gently, Don't let them think you're down, and squeezing her hand hard, Why should you be wasted like this? It's a sin and a shame. He stopped, in what he felt to be an unlucky speech, at sight of her face, which, without movement, expressed so much more than his words. He was protesting as a civilised man. Her face was the protest of nature, the soundest declaration of beauty wasted against its will, beauty that was life's invitation to the embrace which gave life birth. I'm clearing out myself, he said. You and I, you know, are not good for these people. No birds of freedom allowed. Pressing his hand, she turned away into the house, leaving Courtier gazing at the patch of air where her white figure had stood. He'd always had a specially protective feeling for Audrey Knoll, a feeling which, with but little encouragement, might have become something warmer. But since she had been placed in her anomalous position, he would not for the world have brushed the dew of her belief that she could trust him. And now that he had fixed his own gaze elsewhere, and she was in this bitter trouble, he felt on her account the rancour 
that a brother feels when justice and pity have conspired to flout his sister. The voice of Frith the chauffeur roused him from gloomy reverie. Uh, Lady Barbara, sir. Following the man's eyes, Courtier saw against the skyline on the fore above Ashman's Folly an equestrian statue. He stopped the car at once and got out. He reached her at the ruin, screened from the road, by that divine chance which attends on men who take care that it shall. He could not tell whether she knew of his approach, and he would have given all he had, which was not much, to have seen through the stiff grey of her coat and the soft cream of her body into that mysterious cave, her heart. To have been for a moment, like Ashman, done for good and all with material things, and living the white life where there are no barriers between man and woman. The smile on her lips so baffled him, puffed there by her spirit, as a first flower is puffed through the surface of earth to mock at the spring winds. How tell what it signified? Yet he rather prided himself on his knowledge of women, of whom he had seen something. All he found to say was, I'm glad of this chance. Then, suddenly looking up, he found her strangely pale and quivering. I shall see you in London, she said. Touching her horse with her whip, without looking back, she rode away over the hill. Courtier returned to the moor road, and getting into the car, muttered, Faster, please, Frith. End of Part 1 Chapter 21